Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome to May It Displease the Court, a podcast about how deeply and totally screwed up the court system has always been. But especially since Charles Koch, the fossil fuel billionaire, launched a stealth plot to take over the government so he and his merry band of billionaires could amass an unspendably large pile of cash while polluting the environment, free from pesky oversight of democracy. I mean, we talk about fun stuff here, people. Podcasting can be a lonely business, so please reach out and connect with us on social media. Follow me at Displease the Court on Facebook, at CourtPod on Twitter for updates and our thoughts on the news and current events. Or you can email us at DispleaseTheCourt at gmail.com and let us know what you think and what you want to hear about. So, back to the greedy billionaires trying to ruin democracy. They have been very busy attacking voting rights, using dark money to fund their corporate get-more-richer agenda, and getting Republicans in line to challenge every election that they don't win or steal initially, ousting or canceling Liz Cheney, for example, and any Republican who has any loyalty to democracy. This episode, I'm subtitling Why Congress Matters. Now, you may wonder, you know, Why does Congress matter in a podcast that looks at the legal system? Well, it matters because Congress is the voice of the people, or at least it should be. It has the power over the size and makeup and standards applicable to the judicial branch, but its most important function is to make the laws that judges interpret. So this episode is focusing on some very important legislation pending now, H.R. 1. H.R. 1 has passed the House. It's sitting in the Senate. They call their bill S-1. They are virtually the same bill. We'll call ours H- We'll call it H.R. 1. That's typically what you're going to hear in the media. And this is an exciting episode because shit is happening, okay? This bill is absolutely vital. We are seeing the fight being taken back to the Republicans. This bill is bold and comprehensive. It looks at the shit that Trump did that should have been illegal, says, "Uh uh-uh, not again. It combats dark money, foreign interference, but most importantly, it raises the national minimum standards to protect voting rights. This is the bedrock of democracy, which is under massive attack, and this bill might just be the only thing that can save democracy. And let me tell you, I wish that this was hyperbole. We elected Biden and the Democrats to fucking do something. Well, this is that something. Let me give you, in fact, this whole episode is really going to be a a primer on H.R. 1 or the For the People's Act. I'm going to go in depth into it. You're, you, you know, you'll hear a lot of, you know, media stories kind of gloss over it. But I want you to know really what is in it. Why is this so important? And how is this combating the 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 years and decades of attack that Republicans have been bringing to democracy at all levels? 
Not all legislation is good legislation, but this is good legislation. There are four main categories. The first is voting rights and election security. The second is campaign finance reform, tackling dark money and foreign election interference. The third is ethics reform for all three branches of government. And this is big because SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, is not subject to any ethical standards. And then there's kind of like catch-all section, which closes all the loopholes that Trump and his mafia administration used to treat the office of the presidency and the executive branch uh, to benefit himself and his interests and whatever other kleptocratic officials he installed at the expense of the country, and it outlaws those things. Okay, back to the bill. It's always good to ask, you know, is this bill legal? Because undoubtedly the GOP is going to challenge it in court, and then we're going to get to watch Trump-installed judges try to kill it, so that's going to be fun. So basically, is this bill legal? Yes, I believe that it is legal. The Constitution gives Congress the broad authority to regulate congressional elections. Uh, It's a power that the Supreme Court has recently affirmed, although I can't say I trust them. The 14th Amendment gives Congress the power to enforce the right to vote in the states. Okay, so that gives Congress the power to enforce the right to vote in the states. So they have some power over state elections. And the 14th and 15th Amendments give Congress the power to eliminate racial discrimination in voting and the democratic process. This shows up in voting restrictions, redistricting, access to the polls, and felony disenfranchisement. So let me be clear I love this bill. Now, the first main point is HR1 protects the right to vote. And there's a here are the bunch of ways that the bill is going to do that. It expands early voting. It requires convenient places to vote. It makes states count the ballots early. And it protects vote by mail. Here's, here's a huge thing it does. It implements automatic voter registration. That means When eligible citizens provide information to the government agencies like the Department of Motor Vehicles or Social Security, then they're automatically registered to vote. Or they can have their existing registration information updated. Unless they affirmatively decline, meaning they have to opt out. So you're automatically opted into voting unless you opt out. That's going to result in an estimated 50 million new voters. This bill restores the right to vote for those previously convicted of a felony who have completed their terms of incarceration. Yay! This is huge. And it requires that the Census Bureau record incarcerated persons as living in their pre-incarceration communities rather than at the prison facilities where they're serving their sentences. Now, this is super important because what, what does that mean? That means that they're, they're not counted in the places that they're from. They're counted in these rural counties artificially propping up these these very rural white counties making it seem as if they have even more population yet they have the, that population has no say they have no vote i mean that's worse than erasing a person's vote hr1 takes that away hr1 ends partisan gerrymandering with the congressional redistricting reform portion It calls for uniform rules for drawing up districts, it bans partisan gerrymandering, and it gives stronger protections for minority communities and requires that states use independent commissions to draw maps, not just, you know, a couple of Republican consultants in a room drawing maps in secret. 
This fixes a mess that was caused by the Supreme Court in Rucho versus Common Cause. In that case, Chief Justice Roberts, writing for the 5-4 majority, did not defend partisan gerrymandering. He didn't bless it as constitutional. And I'm going to quote from the opinion. Roberts said, quote, excessive partisanship in districting leads to the results that reasonably seem unjust, but the fact that such gerrymandering is incompatible with democratic principles doesn't mean that the solution lies with the federal judiciary. So in other words, he's just like, yeah, yep, that seems not right, but we're not going to do anything about it. The conservative Supreme Court majority cannot be relied on to protect the right to vote. Their solution to unfair maps was uh, to, for the people in them to elect different representatives who will draw different maps. Mm, exactly how are they supposed to do that with gerrymandered districts? Basically, the Supreme Court is saying that, you know, if you don't like gerrymandered maps, you can, uh, you know, magically vote someone else in. Of course, the whole point of a gerrymandered map is so that you can't do that. And uh, you can either just accept that or whatever. But, you know, don't come to us for nonviolent intervention. I mean, that's the point of the courts. The point of the courts is so that we can take our disputes to them and they can apply constitutional, you know, principles in a constitutional matter like this. And we can have a result that is nonviolent. And the courts are just like, yeah, sorry, we're not going to do that. H.R. 1 also protects the right to vote by prohibiting deceptive practices, intimidation, and interference. They make this a crime. That's important. It prohibits the practice of sending voters mail, requiring them to respond, or else their registration gets purged. Republicans have been chipping away at the right to vote, and this bill swoops in and says, hell no. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. The reason it can do this is because the federal government and the Congress is able to set the floor, the minimum standard that has to be met. States are free to raise the bar in their own territories, so they could protect voting rights even more than this floor, but they cannot go below the minimum standard set by Congress. So that's, that's why this is so important. All right, the second main point on H.R. 1 is that it's going to restore preclearance as part of the Voting Rights Act. And the best possible outcome would be a dual passage between H.R. 1, the For the People's Act, and also H.R. 4, which is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So this is another bill that's also pending in Congress that we also want to have passed. H.R. 1 does it by restore by restoring the full protections of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was considered the most effective civil rights legislation in history. Now, the Supreme Court, under Roberts, writing this opinion, crafted a decision in Shelby County versus Holder in 2013 that absolutely gutted the Voting Rights Act. And he was super clever in the way he did it. He's Robert said, well, the Voting Rights Act is so successful that, you know, we don't even need it anymore. I mean, we're in like this post-racial world where race isn't even a problem. The court, uh, so he struck down that the preclearance portion of the Voting Rights Act, um, which had required states and localities with histories of discriminatory voting practices to get federal government approval before they make any changes to their voting rules. 
So the Supreme Court made that section inoperable. And what happened after Shelby County? Well, states with, you know, histories of discriminatory voting practices raced in and others too, uh, to move forward with many new voting restrictions that previously would have been subject to federal government uh, preclearance, meaning they would have had to look at them and and to say, okay, yes, no, no, these are, no, this, this is uh, restrictive. You can't do it. All right. I promise that I will get back to how fantastic HR1 is in a second. But if you just would indulge me for a second, I have got to rant about the GOP. And, you know, you might dismiss this as some partisan rant from an unpatriotic liberal, but I want you to look at what the GOP is actually doing and whose interests they're actually advancing. Because it isn't their own constituency, even. We are at the break glass moment right now. Democrats in the Senate must act and pass H.R. 1. It's imperative. Why? Well, Texas Democrats barely blocked a massive voter suppression bill Memorial Day weekend. And what is happening there is happening in state houses across the country. They tried to do it in the middle of the night, the Republicans, when everyone is busy planning their Memorial Day barbecues and meeting with friends and honoring our fallen service members. The Republican-controlled Texas State Senate passed a massive voter suppression bill, which includes a very scary provision, one that allows judges to overturn an election without determining how individual voters voted. And we all know the state of the judiciary. Luckily, the Texas House Democrats fought back and they used every procedural means to do it. They channeled their own Mitch McConnell, and they blocked the bill, which had to pass by midnight, which was the end of the legislative session. Democrats just, after running out of options, just left, denying the GOP the quorum or the minimum number of legislators needed to pass legislation. So the bill is dead for now. But Texas Governor Abbott wants the bill to come back, and he has threatened to deny Democratic legislators their pay because they blocked massive voter suppression bill. All of this is proof that the GOP has become the host body, which has been taken over and reanimated by a parasite. And this parasite is composed of a few ultra-wealthy, powerful, secretive people, namely the Kochs and his anti-democratic band of misanthropes. Their goal is minority rule. They advocate minority domination, not the protection of minority interests. Notice the distinction. They don't care about winning over voters. They don't even care about their own voters. Once they fully rig the system and they're so close, maybe next election, maybe the one after that, they will not truly be responsive to anyone. What most Americans and seemingly all politicians fail to grasp or to treat with the urgency that this historical time merits is just how small that minority is. It's not 30% of the population that make up the GOP base. Not that I think that 30% of the population should rule over the rest of us. But it's even smaller than that. It is just the handful of tyrannical billionaires and corporate tycoons who also want to take over and rule the country by using the GOP as their puppets. Author and independent journalist Sarah Kenzier points out, and she frequently is urging Democrats, because they're the ones in power right now, and they're the ones who can do something about this, she warns them that impunity is the prize of tyranny of the minority, and it is already here. How do we hold government officials accountable? How do we do that? Well, 
We need the vote in order to do that. Democrats can fight tyranny of the minority by acting now and passing H.R. 1. The second main point that I'd like to address regarding H.R. 1 is that H.R. 1 will restore the preclearance part of the Voting Rights Act. Now, the best legislative outcome is going to require the passage of an additional piece of legislation, H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, in conjunction with H.R. 1. But let's talk about H.R. 1 first. H.R. 1 restores the full protections of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, this was the most effective civil rights legislation in the history of the United States. So effective, according to Chief Justice John Roberts of the Supreme Court, that, you know, we don't even need it anymore. We're in a post-racial world. So, you know, we don't need to worry about that. Ha ha. In uh, Shelby County versus Holder in 2013, John Roberts and the conservative majority gutted the Voting Rights Act. This had a massive impact. What did the Supreme Court do? Well, they removed the Voting Rights Act preclearance provision, which requires states and localities with histories of discriminatory voting practices to secure federal government approval before they make any changes to their voting rules. So the Supreme Court said, nah, we don't need that anymore. We're all good in this country. I mean, just look at the fact that there's no racism anymore. I mean, it's so obvious, right? So, of course, obviously, that's a fiction. Shelby, the Shelby County decision allows states to pass tons of new voting restrictions that previously would have been subject to federal government preclearance. And the GOP legislators took that and ran. They have passed voting restriction laws all over the country. They have been successful in 14 states and counting. There's 60 new bills pending right now. Now, let's revisit this Texas law that almost made it through because it seems to lay out a roadmap that Republicans could use to overturn future elections that they don't like. That law would have allowed judges to overturn an election if the number of illegal votes were greater to or equal to the number of votes needed to overturn the election. Okay, now let's think about what a judge would need to find in order to do that. What would And what would be sufficient proof? Well, they would need to determine what constitutes an illegal vote. Now, how would they do that? Well, there's another part of the law that looks at whether, at the bill, sorry, it's not a law, at the bill that looks at whether there are, quote, too many registered voters. Now, that's important because this is a favorite allegation from right-wing conspiracy theorists because there's a shred of truth in there being a difference in the number of registered voters between the people that actually live in a precinct. But the issue is, is that is not because of fraud, Okay. Due to normal population migration, there is and will always be a real difference between how many people live in an area and how many are registered to vote. Why? Well, it takes time for voter registration to catch up after a person moves. This is common sense. The system doesn't automatically know that you moved from one precinct to another. You have to re-register. Or if HR1 passes, you would just need to change your license or change your you know, mail, and you would be automatically re-registered to vote. Now, in high population, high density areas, those numbers are going to be naturally larger. What else is true about high density, high population areas? Well, they're heavily democratic. This doesn't mean that fraud is happening. To say that fraud is happening because the numbers are different 
is an intentional lie that they're using to justify voter suppression. It's a lie that takes seconds of thinking to debunk, but whole swaths of people just accept it and propagate it because, I don't know, they're unable to or uninterested in in trying to decide if it makes any sense. If the Supreme Court hadn't gutted the Voting Rights Act, then this Texas bill would have been subjected to preclearance. Texas would have come and had to ask the federal government for permission to pass such a law. Now they don't have to. Well, what do we do? How can Congress and the Democrats fight back? They can fight back by passing H.R. 1 and by passing H.R. 4. Now let's talk about H.R. 4. The John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act makes all states subject to preclearance. John Roberts was upset because, well, only the Confederates, former Confederate states, those who historically discriminated, they were the only ones subject to preclearance. H.R. 4 says, nope, all states, everybody is subject to preclearance. I say, great, that's better. The GOP has expanded their suppressive tactics outside of those states. Think about Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. They're casting a wide net. There is legislation, again, 60 bills currently pending right now. Why not make all of those subject to preclearance? That makes the most sense. That's what should happen. Okay, so the third main point, which is something that my GOP friends should really be excited about, increased election security. H.R. 1 is trying to uh, increase the security of our elections and combating foreign interference in our elections. It requires paper ballots. And it requires states to preserve them and requires hand counts for audits. Why is this important? Well, if you just have digital voting that don't track anything, then an outside actor or even a corrupt person inside could just change the vote tally and it's just data on a, you know, saved or transmitted, you know, over broadband that could be hacked. I mean, it's just not that secure. You know, we know that the Russians in 2016 were in our elections, our electronic election systems. They were in, you know, they're trying to, officials, Democrat and Republican, are trying to assure us that the the Russians didn't change any vote totals. But okay, I, I guess I'm supposed to feel secure about that. They're just, they're like, well, they were in there, but they just were watching. They didn't, they could have done something, but they didn't. I mean, I don't know. We got Trump, so. So this bill, H.R. 1, makes paper ballots the standard. And so paper ballots are hard to hack. You know, if you have a bipartisan and independent group of people that are counting the ballots and you have full transparency, you can videotape it. You can broadcast it. People can watch it. If you make that process completely transparent and low tech, that makes it very hard to hack an election because you have all these small precincts. You would have to coordinate so much. It would be virtually impossible for them to change huge swaths of votes. It just it just wouldn't be possible. So it's it's the simplest way to secure our elections. Now, nobody makes any money off of that. There's no voting technology corporations that are making money off of hand-counted paper ballots, but so what? I mean, that that is that that's a that's a win-win as far as I'm concerned. And this section also uh, gives grants to fund election security upgrades, you know, nationwide, which is really important. One of my favorite parts about HR1 is that it 
acknowledges and addresses how dark money has infiltrated our elections, has infiltrated our government, and is ruining it. It is the single biggest threat to democracy right now. And so it so this bill addresses campaign finance reform. We wouldn't be in the mess that we're in right now if, if the Supreme Court had not unilaterally attacked our democracy when it decided Citizens United versus FEC, which ushered in a deluge of secret dark money campaign donations. Now, it's worth noting that the most democratically destructive action that the Supreme Court has taken, they did completely on their own. Courts are supposed to rule on the issues before them that the parties bring. No party briefed the issue or asked the court to decide that money was free speech and that corporations cannot be restricted from spending as much money as they want. No party no party asked the court to decide that. They just did it on their own. And it really makes you wonder who asked the court to engage in this extreme form of judicial activism that, and, and, and let's be clear, it was the right-wing majority of the Supreme Court that did this. And the right-wing majority of the Supreme Court is very vocally opposed to judicial activism. They, they make that this, this, they profess it, you know, and scream it from the rooftops that they are against this. But could there be a bigger form of judicial activism when they're deciding something that completely erodes democracy and, and no, none of the parties asked them to do that? They just came up with it on their own? Since Citizens United, 11 people have contributed roughly one-fifth of the $4.9 billion that super PACs have raised since 2010. 11 people. The central role of elite donors in our political system inevitably requires elected officials to focus on their priorities even when their priorities are not shared by most Americans. We are seeing the effects of that. We are seeing the negative effects of that. I mean, 11. So when I say like a small band of tyrannical billionaires, when I say a very tiny minority, not 30% of Republicans, we're talking about 11 people. Finally, Congress is fighting back against this court decision and the dark money that has taken over our elections. This section of the law makes findings that the Constitution should be amended to allow Congress and the states to set reasonable campaign spending limits that distinguish between natural persons and artificial entities like corporations. Whether a constitutional amendment would pass is another issue, but this is taking steps. HR1 does a lot of great things with regard to empowering small donors. It helps working and middle-class candidates run for office with voucher programs modeled after the one in Seattle with matching funds modeled after the program in New York to help, you know, regular people run for office. And there are way too many millionaires in Congress. Way too many. I I think that there's a lot of Democrats that I personally question what their loyalty is. You know, money is money. And I don't care if there's a D or an R next to your name. If you are only paying attention to the big donors, then frankly, you're corrupt and you shouldn't be in office anymore. So anything that tries to get more regular people elected, that is a good thing. 
This bill requires donor transparency. It strengthens the enforcement of campaign finance laws. Laws are only as good as their enforcement. So if you weaken the enforcement, it doesn't really matter what's on the book. So that's really important that they strengthen the agency that's going to actually go go after uh, violations of the law. It strengthens contribution limits and requires the identification of large donors. So there can't be these giant secret dark money contributions to campaigns and judicial campaigns. They make that specific in the law. There has secretly, you know, been millions and millions of dollars of contributions to get to install these Supreme Court justices. I mean, this is this is it's like buying it's like buying the judiciary. You know, that's what a huge portion of this podcast has talked about. It's going to require the disclosure of who pays for ads and tax exempt organizations. They're also going to have to say who their big donor donors are if they want to engage in political activities. Corporations give lots of money to dark money groups that keep their donors secret. Shareholders don't know they're doing this. So this says, nope, you can't do that. You have shareholders. You have to tell them who you are donating to so that they can express an opinion as to whether they want you to do that or not. It limits the amount of contributions that super PACs that are not actually independent from candidates can donate because they have these things where, oh, they're independent super PACs, but they're not really independent and everybody knows they're not independent. So this gets rid of that. And it's beefing up the Federal Election Commission so that they can investigate and enforce the election laws. Okay, so Trump, right? Trump was a nightmare and he has no ethics because all he wants to do is benefit himself and his companies. It wasn't He had no conflict of interest in his mind. It was all about him. So the executive ethics reform kind of looks at all of the terrible things that he did that weren't specifically illegal and makes them illegal. Presidents and VP candidates have to, have to turn over their tax returns for the prior 10 years. Lobbyists have to disclose who they're working for, foreign lobbyists. You cannot just be acting on behalf of a foreign government or a foreign entity and not tell anybody. It looks at the Mueller report and it, you know, sees the problems and this bill addresses those. It also looks at congressional ethics, which need to be better. And it makes them get off of for-profit boards. So any any type of board um for a for-profit company, they can't be on that. It also prohibits them from advancing legislation with the primary purpose of furthering their own financial interests or those of their immediate family. It's really unbelievable that they're still able to do that, that this hasn't been done, but it's obviously very important. You, you, you go to Congress and then you can just put forward, oh, here, let's let's uh, give a great contract to this company. I just happen to be, you know, own t- tons of stock in that company. Congressional candidates and need to disclose campaign donations from lobbyists. So it can be like, oh, yeah, I'm taking all this fossil fuel and gas money. You know, they have to they have to show that that they're actually doing that. Now we are getting to my favorite provision of this bill. I know it's not the most important, but I think but it's my favorite because it implements ethical requirements to the Supreme Court. Now, I'm going to devote a whole separate episode to judicial ethics where I can really get into this topic because even the ethics that are there that they would be imposing uh, are not good enough. But anything is better than nothing. And so this bill, H.R. 1, makes the Supreme Court justices adhere to a code of ethics just like every other federal judge. 
So this code of ethics would deal with the integrity and the alleged independence of the judiciary, although, you know, we really question whether that we should even bother acting like justices are are independent. They're supposed to be. That is the, the ideal, but that certainly isn't what's going on right now. It would look at matters like recusal, meaning like, oh, I have to get off of this case because I have a conflict of interest with one of the parties or one of the issues. It would require financial disclosures, you know, and really beef that up. We talk about outside employment, partisan political engagement, and gifts. This is a big deal. And the Supreme Court could issue their own voluntary code of ethics, and they haven't done that. So, you know, Robert said, well, I think maybe we should, but then has done nothing about it. So this is Congress stepping in and saying, okay, enough is enough. You don't want to do it yourself. We're going to impose it. And they have that ability. Now, I don't think that it goes far enough. I think that there should be a creation of an independent watchdog agency that has investigative powers over the judiciary. I want them to scrutinize financial disclosure forms. I want them to monitor the court's self-policing. I'm not saying that the court can't self-police and that that isn't the primary way that justices deal with any type of ethical issues or abusive harassment type issues. But I think that there needs to be a step above that. You know, I don't think it's I don't think it's right that, you know, 80 plus ethical complaints against Judge Kavanaugh were completely dismissed, just thrown away. Nobody even looked at them because he was confirmed to the Supreme Court in a highly problematic process. Those just got thrown away. Who knows what they said? And that's a problem. Because, again, if we're looking at the com- composition of the of the bench. Well, we have tons of Trump appointed judges. Yet there's like a quarter of the judges. So if they're the ones who get to decide to just throw away ethics complaints and nobody gets to look at that or make any type of determination or any type of watchdog recommendation on that, then they can just do it in secret. And I just personally feel that if you want to be rich, then get off the bench. Go make money in private practice. You know, nothing's stopping you. If you want the power of being on the bench, then you don't get to profit off of being a judge. I think that that should just be the standard and it should be completely transparent and provable that you are not profiting off of being a judge. That's my whole, yay, yay, this is the amazing bill and it should pass. So, you know, you would think, well, the Democrats control all three branches of government. This should be easy, easy peasy. Just do it, right? But it's not law right now. There's opposition. And who is standing in the way? The GOP, of course. Yes. Unified. The GOP is against this. But it's also some Democrats. I mean, tell me that Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, Kristen Cinema or Kirsten Cinema, the senator from Arizona, both Democrats, are not functionally in league with the GOP. They may actually be in league with the GOP. I don't know but they're functionally in line with the GOP. And there's others too. I mean, uh, Feinstein, our, you know, my my senator in California, you know, she's she's kind of on the fence about things. So if you want to know where your senator stands, then I'm going to include a link to Vote Save America that is a helpful tool from the Pod Save America guys so that you can contact your senator and push them to get on board with saving democracy, which means pass HR1, pass HR4. And I just want to be clear again that the Supreme Court could hold itself accountable to voluntarily institute a code of ethics. John Roberts could do all of these things. But we really have to wonder 
why those who enforce the rules don't want to apply them to themselves. Why is that? We are going to get into that more uh, on the judicial ethics episode. Electing our leaders is the only nonviolent way that we have to choose our leaders. I don't want to live under a theocratic Republican autocracy. I want my vote to mean something. I want the ability to elect representatives that will be responsive to mine and my my fellow citizens' concerns and priorities. I don't want them just listening to rich donors and corporations. The GOP is fine with letting everyone be ruled by a few really rich people because, I mean, that's worked so well in the past. We are still on the brink of losing democracy, even after the Democrats taking control of all three branches of government. And that is pretty depressing. You know, they could do more. They could be bolder. It really makes you wonder, you know, can the Democrats actually stop the GOP, stop the Kochs and their evil band of oligarchs? They could if they wanted to. How? Well, pass H.R. 1 and H.R. 4. This is the legislation that will lead this country back from the brink that Republicans are trying to push us over. In order to do that, they're going to have to kill the filibuster. Again, I'm going to talk about that more in a soon-to-come episode. We need to use our voices to push Congress, most importantly the Senate, as well as Biden, to get this done. Frankly, it must happen, or you better think hard about whether you want to cut and run or stay and fight. And if the GOP gets their way, that fight is going to devolve into an actual fight, not a political one, for democracy. Stay tuned to learn more about saving democracy in the courts and Congress. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode. Because unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger.